Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. By daring to be yourself, that's what you get. You know, if you really try to appeal to the public, whatever that means, you get a very vanilla type of product. Well, I didn't want to appeal to the public. I wanted to appeal to people like me. You know, half, half nut job, half not, half practical, half not. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. Walk into any specialty shop or department store these days and you're likely to find a carousel of stylish reading glasses at impulse buy prices. The category has exploded in recent years with brands like Cadis, Peepers, even Target house brand New Day is selling magnifying glasses that look as great as any expensive prescription pair. Of course, the category leader is iBobs. iBobs is sold today in hundreds of stores nationwide, as well as online and three of its own company stores in the Twin Cities, where it's based. Now a full-service eyewear brand selling prescription glasses as well as readers. But in the year 2000, when the numbers on the spreadsheet started looking a little bit blurry to Julie Allenson, the only options were designer frames that sold for $500 and up, or drugstore readers, you know, those half-glass ones that aren't exactly a fashion choice. Julie, who had no expertise in eyewear, manufacturing, or retail for that matter, saw an opportunity. Today, she shares the story of spotting a gaping hole in the market and building more than a brand. Julie built a new category. We'll hear how she did it, why she sold it, and how it feels to see the company you created continue to grow and change without you. To fully appreciate what Julie did with iBobs on sheer instinct and drive, you gotta know a little bit about where she started. I grew up on a farm in Iowa. Okay. And I was an extrovert from the get-go. Okay. And so to be out isolated on a farm was just a punishment. <laughs> I could hardly wait to go to school. I could hardly wait to be with my friends. Um, you know, small town living, it was just a ball. The closest hometown was uh, 100 people. Mm -hmm. And I went to the same school that my father went to school at, all those types of small town uh, living situations. Loved it. Did you think you were going to stay there? No. Um, I went as an exchange student to South Africa when I was uh, 15 years old, and that was life-changing. Okay. And I knew when I got back that the world was different, mm -hmm. So, and that was good for me. It was hard, but it was good for me. What did you think you wanted to do, or what, what did that experience open your eyes to? Um, that I was probably never going to return to the farm. Um, that I, I was, that having drive was okay, wanting to accomplish things was okay, that 
being a people person was a good thing. And um, my brother had gone to college, so I was going to go to college. Uh, it just confirmed things like that. Mm -hmm. And that the world was a really big place and it was, needed to be explored. And sure. ideas needed to be explored. So did you have an idea about what you wanted to do? Where did you, you go to college? Um, I went to the University of Iowa okay. um, in Iowa City. Mm -hmm. And no, I had no idea what I wanted to do. But that was a time I went off to school in um, fall of 76. And there were no jobs. It was kind of the end of the baby boomers taking all of the jobs. And so you'd graduate from college and you thought flipping burgers would still be a good career. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Not that I ever did that. But it, it, it was, uh, you, you didn't get to pick jobs the way you do today hmm. in mm -hmm. this environment. Yeah. Um, Hold out for the signing bonus. That's and right. The rest, right. <laughs> and then not show up. Right. <laughs> you hear those stories. Yeah. Um, no. So then um, I came to uh, Minneapolis and um, got a job at Piper Jaffray, entry-level job. You know, it was one of those things where I loved marketing and some more creative things, but I majored in finance because I thought it was more practical and I was more mm. likely to get a job. So, you were good at the numbers, too. Well, it paid off later. It's, it's numbers tell a story. You know, what is this, what is this story? Mm -hmm. And um, that helped me many times later. Did you enjoy the, the work at Piper uh, Jeffrey? No. Uh, yes, yes. I enjoyed some of it and uh, didn't enjoy other parts of it. I think it, that's true of every job. Sure. So how long did you do that? Um, well, I stayed there probably four, five, six years. I don't even remember anymore. And then I went to uh, First Bank. Okay. Which tells you something. It's now U.S. Bank, mm -hmm. but it was in the early days. And um, then I took an entrepreneurial jump and went to work for Mackinmore, which was, um, they had a clothing line by the name of Ally Mac, and it was all Polar Tech. Mm. And uh, Jerry Mack was uh, the creative on that and really, really a talented woman. But it was time to raise capital and really create a foundation for the company. So I did that. And so you were there to help them raise the capital? You yes. Were, you were the, the yes. dollars, the numbers yes. person. Yes, as well as add structure mm -hmm. um, to the company. And then... Um, how, did, how did that feel, jumping from these big organizations to something small and entrepreneurial? It felt like at last, at last. Mm. It really, because you're contributing a lot, your nose is an inch from the gravel. You know what I mean? It's not the politics uh, that there are no politics, you know what I mean, in that mm -hmm. side's a company because there are so few people. Um, you know, you're having lunch with uh, everybody every day, that kind of thing, because there's so few people again. Right. It's not like corporate America. You didn't have any concerns about leaving kind of that safety and structure of, of the big company? I mean, had, was entrepreneurship something you'd ever thought about? Um, I didn't feel like I had a safety net that I could actually go out and do that um, on my own. But uh, my spouse provided that for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, uh, it worked out really well. And uh, when I started, in fact, when I started um, iBobs, I went to him and I said, will you be my bread and butter man? And <laughs> he said, yes, I will be. What is it? And uh, I said, you have to provide uh, food, shelter, and health insurance. <laughs> There you so, go. <laughs> and he was my bread and butter man. It is nice to have a bread and butter man. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. That, that is very helpful yeah. in many an entrepreneur's story, and yeah. it's important to acknowledge that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was my second marriage, so um, I couldn't have counted on that in my first, which, you know, I think all of us have those relationships in our lives. But this was my 
my steady man, and he uh, provided mm-hmm. that for me. So at the time when you started in, you know, delving into this world of, of startups, first with this with the other company, um, what was the startup scene like in Minnesota? Was there a scene? Well, let's go back to uh, when I started the company in um, 2000. Google didn't exist. I mean, when you went onto a search engine, that wasn't there. Wait, but before we before we talk about iBob's Macklemore. What year was that? Uh, maybe 1996, 1995. Okay. So when you were when think. you're there and you're tasked with r- helping raise money yeah. for for this startup and you're kind of new to this world, right? Where did you go in those days? Uh, the thing that it was even it was before you got venture capital. That's how small the company was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you start raising capital from friends and family. It was the early, early days of that company. And so we got on the phone and started gathering people to do our little dog and pony show. And um, then you get more creative with that. You get used to the questions that people are asking and, and what your intentions are. And um, we were raising capital at the same time that many time that many dot coms were raising capital. Um, and so it was, it was difficult in that you couldn't get anybody's attention. It was like, well, are you going to give me a thousand times on my money? Well, no, this is, you know, a retail story, a wholesale retail story, clothing story. No, I'm not going to give you a thousand times on your money, <laughs> which, you know, others were telling them it, that didn't happen for 99.9% of the investments they made. But um, even the ones that promised. It, that's probably. right. That's what I mean. They, yeah, they yeah. promised, but didn't deliver. Yeah. Um, so. It, it was difficult. It was it was slow going, but we did get the capital to get them on their on their feet and on their way. And after that happened, is when I said, you know, I just I would rather do this myself. Hmm. Did you know what you wanted to do? Did you have an idea at that point? I had the numbers had gotten really small on the spreadsheets, <laughs> okay. really fuzzy. And so I went over and visited um, a fellow by the name of Jason Engelman. He worked at Specs Optical on Hennepin Avenue at the mm-hmm. time. And he and I were rollerblading partners. And uh, if that kind of dates me, it's meant to. Uh, and I said, oh, Jason, I got to have some reading glasses. And he said, oh, OK, here. How about these? These. Oh, be- and they were beautiful glasses. And uh, how much are they? Oh, they're $500 or $750 or something, you know, way beyond what uh, uh, I needed to spend knowing that I would lose, you know, the first pair in 10 seconds or I needed one next to my bed. and one at my desk and mm-hmm. one of my purse and all those kinds of things. So I said, well, isn't there anything else? And he said, well, yeah, let's try it over to Walgreens. So we went over to Walgreens, and I think I sucked all the air out of Walgreens when I saw what was on that rack for twelve ninety nine. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, my God, do people wear these? Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah, people wear these. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, what's between twelve ninety nine and 500 bucks?" And he goes, nothing. And it really was my aha moment. It was, oh, Okay, I'm going to go figure this out. And I didn't know eyewear from a tennis shoe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew nothing about it. And um, that was daunting and exciting. Hmm. So where did you go? How did you start learning? Well, I spent, um, that's kind of the Google story. You go, now you'd get on Google and start finding sources and start sure. talking to people. But there weren't search engines of that sort at the time. This was like 2000. Yeah, about 2000. And um, so... I just took small steps 
and was really uh, not getting anywhere. I went to a plastics convention in, uh, in Chicago. Uh, I went to uh, an eyewear show in Italy. I, you know, but I wasn't finding what I really needed to find out. And I went home uh, and said to my husband, I need to get on an airplane and go to China and figure out what is going on because it appeared that they were manufacturing for all of the, the Italian manufacturers. And was that true or was that a rumor? Or, you know, you just have to get your feet on the ground and start figuring stuff out. Yeah. And my initial bent was to be made in America. Well, I didn't know at that time that there were no eyewear manufacturers in America. I just wanted to go and see what was happening. And after that trip, I knew, I knew how this was, the world worked. And I think that's one of the things that I would, I've had many entrepreneurs come to me since and say, oh, I've got this idea, you know, I'm going to do this. And I'd say, well, have you gone there? No, I'm, I haven't gone there. Hmm. Well, are you going to get on an airplane and go to wherever it is? If it's Canada, Europe, you know, Vietnam, China, wherever. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, good luck to you. Because I, I just think you have to know, if you want to know your business soup to nuts, you've got to start figuring that out. It's just like a, uh, putting together a puzzle. What are all these pieces floating right. around? I, I wonder if today the internet is sort of this false sense of security where people think they know everything because they can Google it. You didn't have that That's right. And I think that's uh, lucky for me that I didn't have Mm -hmm. that at the time. So when you got to China, where in the world did you go? How how did you know what Uh, to do? I put my husband in charge of transportation, and I had um, uh, emailed some folks off of several different search engines. I had, uh, back in the day, I mean, you could write a letter. God, it took 30 days, but you'd never hear from those people because they more than likely didn't have somebody that spoke English. Um, but I was in Hong Kong, and they had sales offices there, and then you'd go to the manufacturing sites in China. And it was uh, July, so it was you know, 117 and high humidity and just got awful. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to visit uh, somewhere between 15 and 17 offices and uh, started to figure out who had the quality, what what was I looking for? You know, um, all of these, it was, what I was looking for was quality and style, fashion, mm-hmm. you know, something that you would dare to wear, something that you spoke of yourself, something that uh, had imagination. Mm-hmm. No one had thought to do that in the form of readers. Right, right. Readers were a throwaway item, uh, you know, Walgreens, dollar store, that type of item, mm-hmm. and uh, very low quality, disposable, and that's not what I wanted to wear, nor did that, was that how I wanted to be perceived. Could you believe that nobody else had done that? It seems so obvious and so needed, and so many people wear readers. How is it possible? Well, it was on the cusp of the baby boomer. You know, uh, the baby boomer had figured out they needed readers, and even though I'm at the tail end of that, uh, many had had uh, been wearing these ugly readers. So when iBobs finally came to fruition um, and they discovered them, and it was the customer that had to discover them, the end user, uh, they were delighted. They were ready. So you come home from China armed with all of this knowledge of the manufacturing and sales, Mm -hmm. and then what do you do with all that information? Uh, You 
freeze in place. You go, oh my God, this is really it. Now it's time to get started. And you start ordering samples. You do your designs. You start ordering samples. Did you do the designs? Um, yes, I got a lot of help from uh, Jason. Okay, your friend under- Jason yep. who worked in the industry. Yep. I primarily did all of the color work and shape work. He did lots of fit work for me and was very generous. And um, And then I got my samples. And I would use, you know, you have minimums that you had to make, and I would uh, use whatever they had left over from a giant order that they had taken, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, as long as it was the quality of, of uh, plastic or xyle that I wanted, I was happy to use it, and it was all name brand um, plastics, Mott's Kelly. Your um, your aesthetic, I think iBobs is known for its bold colors and, and designs. Was that right out of the gate? I mean, what, what right were the, out of the gate? What were the first samples? What colors? Right out of the gate, uh, reds, blues. Uh, my, I can remember putting this pair together for Christmas, and it was a giant pair of glasses, uh, and it was red on the front with lime green temples, and a lot of people were still wearing rimless frames. But I thought, this is a way to kick it in the ass. This is, if I'm going to get older, I'm going to wear it. I want to look, you know, wise and sassy and in your face and really make a statement. And if you are a, and I often said this, if you are shy and you want to melt into the woodwork, this probably isn't the frame for you. Mm-hmm. And you weren't worried about that. You didn't want to. I, those weren't my people. Mm-hmm. I had I had people. So. You were confident that there were others like you. Yes, who yes. Naively confident. Was it really that easy to sell bold avant-garde readers to a consumer who didn't know they were even an option? We'll find out after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank providing a means to a dream. Julie's created the reading glasses of her dreams. Now, how will she bring them to market? Let's find out. So you have your samples, and then what do you do? Where are you going to sell them? Um, I start out by going to eyewear um, shows. In, there's one in New York and one in Vegas. And I go to my eyewear show, and people would pick up the frame and say, oh, I can't sell this. This is nicer than some of my expensive frames. I can't do this. And it really uh, told you what the quality of hmm. workmanship is out in, in the marketplace. Well, and what, what did you, what was the price point? Uh, at the time, it was $79. Okay. And uh, so... It, You've got to teach a consumer that you could spend $79 on to, readers when they've been spending 10 bucks at Walgreens. You have to teach a wholesaler. Mm-hmm. That your consumer will spend seventy nine dollars. So yeah. you weren't worried that the yeah. you knew that the consumer would spend it because you would have spent it. That's what I felt strongly about. Yes. I see. Yes. And so, how long did it take to convince the wholesalers? Uh, about two years. Huh. And I was ready to fold up like a bad card table. <laughs> and I kept going to the optical people and uh, 
expecting them to understand the reading business. And at kind of a last gasp, I went to Hubert White. Brad Sherman was a fellow that worked down at Hubert White. That's I, a men's clothing a store. A men's clothing store. In downtown in, Minneapolis. Yep. And it sold, and he told me straight up, we sell suits, ties, white shirts. You know, this was very much before a casual day. Right. And uh, which every day is casual day now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, but I'll, you're local. I'll give you a try. But you have to take it all back, which is they call that, you know, being on wheels. He said, you have to take it all back if it doesn't sell. And uh, I was very reluctant to do that. I, I wouldn't do that at, at my other um, sites. And classes get scratched, so it's hard. You can't resell them mm. if you take them back. So I said, but, it, you know, it was, I was really struggling. And he said, uh, you know, that's the deal. So I left my glasses there. And he called me two weeks later and said, this is the worst phone call I've ever had to make. And I said, why? And I'm just, you know, thinking, oh, I've got to come and take these back. He goes, I'm sold out to the piece. What? And that was the beginning of iBobs. Why, why do you think? It's so fascinating, too. Of all customers, that's a very kind of classic, traditional man. They wanted to wear your wild and crazy frames? Yeah. Well, it, it's really that I was selling fashion. Hmm. I wasn't selling, you know, um, an optical product in an eyewear store. I was selling fashion. These men were wonderfully dressed, mm. well-suited, well-dressed men, natty dressers, and they wanted their eyewear to be the same. How could you spend that much money on a suit and tie, and you want to go into uh, a situation and look you know, smart, and if, whether you're a CEO, a lawyer, whatever it is, and um, put on $2 glasses or $12 glasses. That just didn't fit the part, and these did. These were statement-making glasses. Hmm. So so that was a big discovery for you that maybe you needed to sell these outside of eyewear stores. That's exactly right. And then he led me to uh, 12 of his friends that sold uh, across the United States and said, contact these people. Hmm. They can sell your eyewear. And I did. And they said, oh, yeah, Brad's already called us. You know, Hubert White's already called us. Yeah, Because then you had proof of concept. I had proof, right, proof okay. of concept. And wow. So so, so how, what, what year was that? That, that I mean, you'd been at this without much success? 2002, 2003. Okay. Yeah. But I think it was 2002. It just seemed like an eternity. <laughs> you know, it, and, it really what, wasn't that long, but it seemed like an eternity. And when it wasn't working, I mean, that's so hard and that's so deflating when you're so excited about something. How, what kept you going? Um, your skin is super raw. Do you know what I mean? And you really, uh, the outside world can be so cruel. So when I was struggling, I learned to stay away from the naysayers. Go to the people that say, yes, you can do this. Oh, you know, this, how, you know, this is how you do this. Mm-hmm. Or I believe in that. I heard this story. So you want to go to all the people that are, that are you know, saying yes and thinking about a, a new day, not yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that were talking about the way it used to be done, stay away from them. You don't need that. <laughs> you don't need that. You need people that are saying, God, that's a great idea. Uh-huh. You know, have you thought about this and this and this and this? Yeah. And stay away from the naysayers that go, oh, I knew that would never work. That in, was never going to work. In those early you know. days, were you bankrolling this whole thing? Was yes. It, okay. 
In fact, I did. We did all along. Yeah. Um, at, we came to a point that the business needed an, uh, an influx of cash, and uh, my husband had a heart attack. Hmm. Um, not over that, but <laughs> for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we talked about what's creating stress, and he said, "Well, let's sell the house, and we'll move into a condo." And you know, so I, he didn't have to um, blow snow or you know whatever it was yeah. bothering him that day, or you know rake leaves or. Uh, and uh, he said, let's not take out any debt on the, on the company. And it was like, gulp. And uh, so it really was a situation where um, I would take the money that we were making, invest it, and then kind of hit that ceiling. And it was really uh, bootstrapped to the max mm -hmm. so that uh, we could get, that, get through that period. So once you had the breakthrough that you could sell these glasses at retail, and I remember those days where you were on the counters of all yep. kinds of boutiques, mm -hmm. how, how quickly did it grow? How many stores were you in? Well, it ended up being hundreds of stores, but it included accessory stores, gift stores, uh, women's stores, men's stores, you know, you can, airport stores, lots of places you need reading glasses, that they're mm -hmm. an impulse item. And so it was hundreds of stores, uh, but retail was still, you know, very healthy. Uh, we're talking pre-pandemic days. Yeah. And um, it was changing. We're talking pre-Amazon right, days, right. really. We're, we're, Amazon Prime anyway. <laughs> we, are, we are talking about days where the internet was getting started. Yeah. When I started, nobody would sell against their wholesalers. So you could go to a website and get information, but very few people, uh, very few companies were selling directly to their consumer. Were you, um, did you start making money? Uh, yes, we started making money. But like I said, uh, you just put it right back into the company. Mm -hmm. And what I also would do with that money is I, uh, after... About three years, I started hiring employees, and that really helped me, really helped me. I suddenly had somebody that I could bounce an idea off of, and I, that's something I take very seriously. All these employees uh, contributed, and they were a really important part of my business, is um, pe hiring people that were willing uh, to say what was on their mind and contribute and feel like that they were a part of the success. And they were. What were some of your first hires? What, what areas of the business? Uh, customer service, mm -hmm. packing and shipping. And I hired, uh, I was fortunate enough to hire uh, two people on the same day. I mean, I'd had a part-time bookkeeper. They came, you know, came and went, you know, somebody that embezzled, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Their 300, they paid their $300 credit card with, you know, bill with uh, some money that mm. uh, had come in. You know, small things that didn't really hurt the company, hurt my pride, but mm -hmm. didn't hurt the company. And uh, I hired two people on the, the same day, and they really, they really changed um, iBobs. Hmm. It was uh, Sol Navarro, who is uh, part of the customer service team at, at Nordstrom. Mm. Well, what a wonderful thing to bring to iBobs. And uh, Kim Kraft, who knew the optical business inside and out. Hmm. And so th those two really, really helped me get established. Did, and um, that they were also part of the, uh, I don't like having lunch alone every day, so let's have lunch together. Yeah. And it started a thing that, it, you know, uh, didn't end until we sold iBobs. Was there a moment at, was the growth, once it started, did it feel just kind of steady? One store, then 10 stores, then 20? Or, I mean, was there a moment of inflection? Oh, there, 
there were moments it was skyrocketing. I can remember I had so many back orders. I said, okay, I'm going to eat two cookies a day until this is over. That was my thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked in the mirror one day and thought, well, that's got to stop. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, one of those compensations. But yes, you, uh, of course, there, there were times it was just, um, yeah, the back orders were there. You don't t- realize at the time that that's not a bad thing. Hmm. You know what I mean? That to say, yeah, we're sold out does build up demand the next time you go out. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was really, really fun. Did, do you remember a, a, a moment at which, I mean, when you're so heads down and in it and doing all the things, was there a moment when, when you said, oh, my gosh, this is really working. <laughs> I really was right. <laughs> yeah, I actually I had I had many days like that where I would would. Uh, Say, oh my God, I can't believe that worked. That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, it was so rewarding and uh, really fun, really fun. We had people all over the United States that I, I can't tell you some of them because they wouldn't like it. Lauren Hutton, for example. I mean, you know, uh, it's just all these you, people. You knew you were mailing glasses to celebrities. and to, Yes. Wow. Yes, but they didn't want to be exposed because it was a sign of aging. Oh, Do you know what I mean? So, gosh. you know, that. So, they were wearing reading. So, glasses. did you start reaching out to some of them, or? Yeah, well, that's how we got Andrew Zimmer, and that's how um, Elton John's entire band wore eyebots. Mm. Um, you know, because they needed reading glasses to see the music mm-hmm. and whatnot. And um, and so then you started yeah, so all naming the... glasses or getting them to be in ads, or what did you yeah. do? Yeah, or, or just having social media wasn't big mm-hmm. yet. Otherwise, we would have used yeah. that. But yeah, just getting them to talk about their glasses. And Andrew Zimmern, uh, when we connected with him, uh, he was doing something over at Cooks of Crocus. And so uh, the entire staff, I bought out Cooks of Crocus for that evening. And um, the entire staff went over for dinner. And his comment was, and the whole idea was to approach him to do something with this, was, what took you so long? <gasps> you know? <laughs> Because he was already a brand fan. Yes, he was already. I a just brand still fan. picture him in those orange yeah. glasses. Yes, that's exact. And orange and yeah. purple. Yeah, they were. Really and then in purple. turn, did that make a difference? I mean, once people knew that Andrew was wearing eye bobs, did you start selling more orange glasses? Uh, yeah, yeah. And people, yeah, people recognized that brand right away on him. Huh. Yes. Were there yes. others that you can name drop that you did? Uh, I mean, Elton John's oh, a pretty good God. one, but were there? Yeah. <laughs> I got to see how fuzzy Did you my have dinner with is. him I, ever? <laughs> no, no, Private I didn't. concerts? <laughs> no, but I did take the entire staff. You know, we really had yeah. fun. Took the entire staff. They got us tickets in the, I think, the third row mm. for everybody and their, their partners. And mm-hmm. So there was basically a block of 50 tickets yeah. for, that they gave to us, which was nice. That we so that kind of that marketing strategy, that was just sort of intuitive to you. Yeah, that's the easy yeah. stuff. The market is quite different today. Obviously, a mm-hmm. lot of people have followed your lead. How quickly did the copycats emerge and how did you, you know, how do you compete? Just stay true to yourself. Put your blinders on. You know, know what's going on in the marketplace, but don't run over there to figure out what they're doing. You figure out what you're doing. Be true to yourself. Create your own brand. Create your own message to your customers. Talk to your customers. Don't, this is often a mistake. As I said, people don't want to go see their manufacturers. They don't want to go figure that out. They're also afraid to talk to their customers. 
sit in customer service, answer the phone, find out what's going on, meet with your customer service people, go work those shows if you're in, in that situation where your wholesalers are at the shows. Don't be afraid to hear the bad news because mm-hmm. guess what? You also get the good news and you can fix what's you know, troubling your customer or maybe you can't, but you'll figure a way around that. Um, yeah, it's, it's really important. To, to be really involved. What was your favorite um, aspect of it? What part of the business did you enjoy the most? Well, I do think that um, I loved the, the whole idea of design and coloring, and that was really fun. But I do think what was attractive about the business was I felt like I was on the Ed Sullivan show, that I had all these, you know, um, uh, what do I want to say? The, the um, uh, pool sticks with uh, white plates on top. And I'm spinning all those plates. I'm just spinning them and I'm spinning them. And don't let one plate fall. And yeah. you're so busy. You just, you know, staying at work until late at night was such a pleasure. And I could hardly wait to get back there the next day. I just mm-hmm. had so much to do and mm-hmm. uh, so many ideas. People to talk to at work and listen to their ideas, figure out what's going on. I mean. Um, we started out by, as I said, focusing on the opticals. You learn that you're going to go into the menswear. And as soon as I could figure out and pay for those menswear shows, then I went into the women's wear, and, which I was you know, primarily interested in anyway, because that's what I, I am mm-hmm. and, and more. And then you go into the accessories. And then all of a sudden you're saying, okay, the, I've got this covered. Oh, the internet. People are starting to sell on the internet. I'll figure that out. I mean, it's that constant running. Oh, okay. Now I'm going to go into the catalog business. Let's figure that out. One of the reasons I wanted to get in the catalog business was I needed for people to see the eyewear and see what was different about it. And, um, you know, you used to go during the holidays and you get 5,000 catalogs Mm -hmm. in the mail, right? Well, suddenly it had dwindled to nothing. I thought, now's my time. Because instead of being in with a ton of other catalogs, we'll be the only catalog in there. And there wasn't part of you that thought, well, there's a reason why other brands have gotten out of the yeah. catalog business? No. No. It was like, now's the time. Okay. And did it work? Yes. It, it Very successfully. Yes. So even though you were in hundreds of stores, there was still something about sitting with the catalog and finding right. your frame. Right. And there wasn't always a store where you shopped. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that's what you were trying to do, was to get, uh, get it in the hands of people that were interested in wearing that fashion, that statement. Mm-hmm. And they might not be in Iowa City yet, or they might not be at that store in Iowa City where that person shops, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the catalog was another vehicle to talk to them. And it really showed two of my employees put that together. Um, they came and proposed that they, you know, they'd never worked on a catalog before in their life, but this is what happens. Um, they proposed that they put the catalog together. And it was like, oh, okay, yeah, let's do that. You know, and I thought, you'll never be able to do this. Okay, take it over. And they did a phenomenal job. Huh. And it was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, so much fun. And really celebrating their success in in, uh, how they put that. And and that was before you were selling glasses online? Uh, No, it was actually after we were selling glasses. Yeah, yeah. Online had become big, so people stopped doing catalogs. You know, and the stores were starting, retail stores were starting to worry about the online business. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
Amazon was becoming a thing, mm-hmm. or had become a thing, I guess. Yeah. But it worked. It worked, yeah. And all these puzzle pieces, and uh, it's creating this big crescendo, mm-hmm. uh, which is really exciting. So. How big was your vision, pun intended? Um, much smaller. Really? Yeah. <laughs> much smaller. Even as you were getting traction, you didn't start thinking... I don't know. I mean, this is this is well, going to be the next huge national, you know, the biggest eyewear brand out there. Well, I think when I set out, I I was really looking to employ myself and a couple of friends, kind of thing. You know what I mean? You uh-huh. think, you know, it'll, we'll, it'll be a. Uh, I didn't realize what a cult product it turned into. That's hmm. what, and that's what was magical about it is we had followers that were so devoted to the brand. And that was exciting. That was exciting to, to develop. And it, that was exciting to, um, you know, create for them and talk to them. Is that something that you can control? Or is that just one of those magical things that it happens or it doesn't? I have to think that your personality I, and the fact that you weren't afraid to. I think by daring to be yourself, that's mm-hmm. what you get. Mm-hmm. You know, if you really try to appeal to the public, whatever that means, you get a very vanilla type of product. Well, I didn't want to appeal to the public. I wanted to appeal to people like me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> half nut job, half not, half practical, half not, you know, just, um, yeah, yeah. And it works. some people that would dare to do it. Yeah. So at what point did you start thinking about selling? Were you looking to to sell? You were having so much fun and loving what you were doing. I started to feel like I was choking the company. Hmm. You know, that I had entrepreneured it uh, to the nth degree. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I had, and that somebody else could do it better. So it was time for an operator. Right. It was time for an operator. Can you give me an example? Were there things that went wrong or just weren't, did you plateau in terms of growth? No, it wasn't either of those things. It was that we had so many opportunities. Should we open stores? Should we, you know, uh, private labels? Should we, uh, you know, co-brand? Should we, and it was just all of these things. And while all of those things were really exciting to me, they had, um, Somehow you get in your head that when you were risking everything, it was less than what you're risking now because, you know, you you have all these customers and all these employees and whatnot. You have to become a little more cautious. Right. I became more cautious, and I didn't think that was really good for, mm. for the brand. And it, you recognize that in yourself? Yes. Yes, I So what, what, what year was that, and what did you do? Uh, it was 2014. Okay. And I started to think, you know what, it's time, it's time to go. Hmm. It's time to sell this. But did you, I mean, were you tired? Were were you tired of working those long hours? Or was it truly about what you thought was best for the company? Uh, It was the company. Oh, and yes, I was tired. You know, I was really tired. And I always said, oh, God, if I could just take a month break. You know, if I take, and in in the end, that's not really true. You don't take a break. You are an entrepreneur Mm 24-7. There's no break involved. And uh, I always laugh at these, you know, people that are looking for balance, well, then don't become an entrepreneur. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. There's no balance. Yeah. You're in it. You're in it to win it, you Mm -hmm. know? And uh, uh, so, well, I started, I started to think about that and, and uh, I thought, yeah, okay. And then selling it became the next adventure. 
Yeah. Um, so talk about that. Did you know how you wanted to go about it? Was there instant interest when you started telling people I, you wanted to sell? I went to Terry Kravosha here in town. She's a lawyer here in town at Maslin. And um, an acquaintance of mine through um, uh, WPO, which is a women's president's organization that I was a member of, where you find uh, like knuckleheads that have started their own business. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. So you can all commiserate. <laughs> That's exactly right. And um, she said, oh, yeah, I can help you with that. And she referred me to um, several people that, you know, uh, were, you know, across the nation that might be able to help me. Um, and I went to a fellow by the name of Jim DeQuilla here in town. And he was an investment banker. This is how you do this. Okay. And we hitched our wagon to Jim. And he literally, he knew it was the first company I'd ever sold. It wasn't like I had sold 10 others. And uh, he held my hand through the whole process. And uh, held my hand or kicked my ass, I can't remember. And uh, <laughs> no, he, he, he did what was needed, was really kind and got me through that process. And it was exciting. It was fun. And um, you sold to, to uh, Northwest? NEP, yeah. Northwest Equity Partners, mm -hmm. uh, here in town, a private equity group. Was it important to you that it be someone in Minnesota? No, not at all. Um, but we had, um, we were... A really, you know, what do I want to say? We were a really popular girl at the dance. There were a lot, all these investment bankers uh, and private equity folks, they were iBobs. They knew the brand. Hmm. And that was, you asked about when there was a tilting point. Mm -hmm. um, that point came when I'd, you know, go to the airport and I'd see all these people wearing iBobs. When I'd be on the street in New York and see all these people wearing iBobs, I'd come back to Minneapolis and I'd see all these people wearing iBobs. That's when I, I was at, yeah. that, at that point. That's exciting. And, yeah, it did, was exciting. So when I, we went to sell, these people knew the brand. And did you kind of interview them? Did you have that luxury? What do you want to do with it? And, and how important was it to you, you know, what would happen next and to all the employees that were working for you? Um, I had enough experience, I guess, talking to other entrepreneurs that I knew when I sold it, it would be forever changed. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I was quite ready for that how that would impact me or impact my employees. Mm. Because um, after the sale, it really did take my breath away. You know, it, uh, you're used to running things and suddenly, oh, yeah. <laughs> and what was when you, so when you decided to sell two Northwest Equity mm -hmm. Partners, why did you choose them? Mm -hmm. And was the arrangement that you were going to leave immediately or were you supposed to stay on in a transitional um, role? I sold to them because I had a high trust level. They are mid good mis Midwestern folk. They mm -hmm. really are. And then um, I told them that I wanted a new CEO. I really did. I was looking for relief in that area. I needed somebody else uh, to be the answer man. And uh, I didn't want it to be me anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, you wanted to stay involved. I wanted to stay involved. Right. Right. But, it, you know, looking back on it, it's really easier to walk away at that point. Yeah. Um, easier and harder. It, yes. Both. <laughs> right? Both. Because, yeah, you, you, you'd say, well, uh, while they wanted to defer to me in some ways, they wouldn't defer to me in other ways. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. and. Uh, yeah, so it it gets difficult, and then you know that that day has come that you need to leave. And 
And I did. So I remember writing uh, about some of the transitional um, times and some of the things that that happened after um, stores came fairly quickly, or was that a little while down the road? The store planning stage probably started about a year. It took about a year. There was a, um, a CEO that came in and uh, created a new vision for iBobs, and it was to have retail stores. And so many of our customers were taking their reading glasses and converting them to uh, prescription eyewear because mm-hmm. that is the quality that we created. And that was the idea was to create a high-quality product. Yeah. Uh, that it just seemed a natural step to go into the prescription eyewear business as well. At this point, are you in, in any way in, involved with the no. company? Not no. at all. And how do you how do you move on as it what's what's the lesson there as an entrepreneur? Uh, it, founder? Was, it was I should have started a company right away. You know what I mean? Huh, interesting. I was trying to my husband. Um, he was done and he ended up coming to work at iBobs about seven years into it uh-huh. and uh, was the um, um, CFO. Mm hmm because he's a numbers and, and technical guy. So uh, that was really nice to be able to hand that off to him and uh, instead of him doing it nights and weekends. And uh, so he was done. He was happy that we'd been successful. He had a golf game in his, you know, that he wanted to play. He was wanting to go to uh, North House Folk School and do things, uh, you know, whittle some spoons, that kind of thing. <laughs> you didn't have those kind of hobbies I, yeah, lined right. up? Yeah, right. I didn't have that lined up. And... Uh, so instead, I uh, helped my mother exit. Who, she was dying at the time. Mm. And then both things left me breathed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That uh, I was mourning the, the change in my business. And uh, I also was trying to be very thoughtful of the people that were left there. I, you know, How many employees did you have when you uh, sold? About 26, I think. And 24, 26. And they need to move on. And so I really uh, tried to draw a line and... and uh, and leave them alone, even though they were close, close friends. Mm-hmm. So people I relied on. So why do you say, I mean, are you serious when you say you should have started something else right away? Oh, yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. Because that's just, you're wired that way? You I'm need, wired that way. You need way. a project. And I have that drive. I need a project. Yeah. All those types of things. So what did so, you do? Oh, I uh, bought a place in Stockholm, Wisconsin and rehabbed it. I've got a farm there and mm-hmm. traveled a lot. And uh, took up pickleball. Yeah, took up pickleball. <laughs> took care of my mom for until she was gone. You know, things like that. Do you? Uh, I I mean, do you have regrets? Do you wish you hadn't sold it? Oh no, I don't. That's it. Was the right thing. It was definitely the right thing. Yeah, my regret is I should have started something again. W- would you still? Do you think? Do you have a list of ideas? Uh, yes and no. Do I wish I? I think about it. I still think about it. But no, I, I think I'm, I'm over that hump. Are you wearing eyebobs today? No, I'm not. You're not? No. Well, how do you feel when you pass an eyebobs store at Mall of America or wherever or you see people? Um, I'm elated. No, I'm elated. I'm glad that, uh, you know, that they're there. And I'm glad that people are wearing them. But, you know, when you design for yourself, suddenly what somebody else is designing, oh, that's not made for my bridge that's not made for my Mm. face that's not you know Mm -hmm. and um yeah yeah it's yeah I mean it's a it's a process and it's emotional for sure yeah I think that's really it it's emotional yeah 
it's kind of amazing, though, what you did. And I, I hope there are moments where you, I mean, you do kind of pat yourself on the back. and Oh, every enjoy. day I'm thrilled that I did it. Yeah. I'm absolutely thrilled. And it was the most rewarding thing. I loved it. Absolutely yeah. loved that ride. But it's a roller coaster, you know. So what advice, and I imagine you get asked all the time, and I, I know you, you say you don't like to talk about it, but you are truly such an expert with, with the experience that you've had. Um, what advice do you give to, you know, other, to young women who have an idea and want to go out and try it? Uh, if not you, then who? Why not you? Mm-hmm. Do it. Stop thinking about it. Stop talking about it. Start putting that stake in the ground right away. And uh, as I said earlier, stay away from naysayers. There are all sorts of people out there that can tell you how it can't be done. Yeah. Why it can't be done. All the hurdles, all the obstacles. Um, that's not what it takes to run a business or start a business. You know, you don't need your PhD in, you know, statistics to figure out X, Y, Z. Uh, you need to go and talk to the customer and believe in yourself and, uh, get off the mark. Mm -hmm. It really is. When you look at what's happened, you know, entrepreneurship has become, I feel like, you know, founders are the new rock stars. I've said that before here and, you know, it, it's just become so flashy and so popular. Everybody wants to to do it. And, and, you know, it's a path that I don't know that people thought about, you know, 20 years ago, even when they were going to college. How, I'm curious how you process that, what you think. Do you find it amusing? Is it good for society? What, what do you think when you compare what entrepreneurship and startups and, and that world and raising money is like today compared to when you were doing it? Well, I think... Um... I think the thing that I laugh at is that you can take a class in entrepreneurship. I don't really think it can be taught. Hmm. I think it has to be from within. Um, so that's, I think that's my take on it is, yeah, you can go and listen to, you know, different speakers, different, you know, professors try to teach you uh, about entrepreneurship. But the real deal is from within. Hmm. And do you have the tenacity for it? Can you take that uh, rejection over and over and over again so that you just keep reshaping what you're doing? And uh, it's often was told to me, what you start out to be is not what it'll end up being. And I think that's true. Yeah. You know, you start out thinking, oh, I'll, you know, try to get 30 stores. Well, it ends up being 300 or I'll start out in reading glasses and it ends up being RX or I'll start out selling to optical and you end up selling to men's stores. You start out saying, oh, I'd like to sell wholesale and you end up having a catalog business. You know, there's all sorts of changes. So what you start out as, and that's part of that education route. And that's, that's what makes it exciting. But you have to be able to uh, adapt to that, be excited by that and not say, oh, it didn't work, you hmm. know, and, and pout. Mm -hmm. you, you get back up the next day and try to figure out what the next step is or how to, how to tweak it and what to do and how to move on. Right. It has to be that there's nothing else you can do, yeah. right? Like right. You, you're the that's one it. to do it. Yes, that's it. That's, yeah. that's all you can do. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic story. It's quite a brand you created. Um, when you, you, you see some of the others that are out there today, the, the Warby Parkers and what's happened and kind of this whole like democratization of, of eyewear, do you feel a little bit like, yeah, I was doing that before. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Of course. 
<laughs> you should. You should, darn it. <laughs> That's right. You've earned that. Julie, well, thank, you. thank you so much for sharing your story. It's thank a great you. one. And I, I think Minnesota is proud to to call iBob's a hometown well, brand. Thank you. Well, I think you might have heard Julie Allenson issue a challenge there. Can you actually teach entrepreneurship? So let's go to the teacher himself, John McVeigh with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. Professor McVeigh, when you heard her say, can't you laugh about teaching entrepreneurship, what did you think? It's literally what you do. Thanks a lot. Uh, You know, when I first heard Julie say that, I absolutely agreed with her. What? Yeah, I, I, I think she's a fabulous example of what has led to her success is how she thinks, mm-hmm. not what she knows and not what she does, but how she thinks. And, and uh, you know, I think we can't, uh, in a formal class, teach people what to do to make their business successful because there's a, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. There's a thousand ways to do this. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is teach the ability to think creatively mm. and put people in the environment where they get confident in those skills. Because sadly, a lot of education teaches us the opposite. It teaches us that you, not to learn creatively. Hmm. So I've sort of got a, a list of sort of counterfactuals that we, we bring to entrepreneurship classes at St. Thomas, where we say, this might surprise you about the way we approach our classes. Because our job is not to teach you what to do, it's to teach you how to think. Okay, so can you, can you give us some highlights? Well, the first thing is you will never be penalized in this class for being wrong. Mm. And frankly, students don't even believe this at the start. <laughs> um, because they're, they're, we are so wed to this idea that they're writing wrong answers and the way to get smart is to memorize the right answers. Mm-hmm. And we say, that's not the way you're going to come up with new ideas. So you will never, we learn, we hear all through her story, how she learned by mistakes. Right. And so we can't then penalize people for being wrong in class. Unless, of course, you're making the same mistake over and over again and not learning from it. Right. Secondly, we, we tell people straight off, there's not a right answer to any situation. And again, there's a bunch of right answers. There's a bunch of different ways you could solve a problem. But number three, there are wrong answers. Hmm. Data and information is valuable and it can prove to you that there are things you shouldn't do. But there's a bunch of different ways you could take this idea. There's a bunch of different right answers. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to focus on calculating the right answer, but we're certainly going to identify some wrong answers. Sure, sure. Then the, the other thing we, we say is because you can't perfectly plan success, doesn't mean you just give up and say, oh, it's all luck and it's all random chance. And I'll just jump off the cliff and do anything. You can't perfectly plan, but you have to take this approach of, constant trial and error and learning mm-hmm. right so 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 that's a very different approach from oh it's all just luck or i can plan myself to death uh the next one is you know data doesn't tell you anything unless you spend time inferring what it means uh-huh. so students are always presenting information and data and spreadsheets and charts and then we say well what does this mean and that, oh, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't really say. It's how you interpret it. Right. That subjective judgment is what brings the value. And mm-hmm. you can hear this coming from Julie all the way through her story, that she will actually find out information 
but then she will tell you what that actually means to her. She's taking a bet on what this data and information means. You've got to have the confidence. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't just be too scientific and say, I have to be able to prove. You have to be able to make inferences on the basis of some information and be confident with your subjective judgment. Mm -hmm. And then the devil and the angels are in the details. And that's where I love her comments about getting your nose close to the gravel. You know, all of this information that you, that you get off the internet and all of this information that you can find in industry reports is all publicly available. So the chances of you finding something that will differentiate you from publicly available information is pretty low. So you've got to get out there, as she said, get in the plane, get in your, your shoes on the street, and you've got to get out there to find original information and insights that only you know. And you don't get that sitting in your dorm room <laughs> researching it on the web because everybody can do that. Right. And you have to expect all your plans to fail, but that doesn't mean you don't plan because you have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere in order to make the bets, to make the mistakes that are going to make, give you the learnings that ultimately will surprisingly lead to success. You have to be comfortable with discomfort. Absolutely. Comfort mm -hmm. with ambiguity is one of the biggest, biggest traits we have with an entrepreneur. And so the last thing is, you are the world's leading expert on yourself. Hmm. That's the only thing you're ever the world's leading expert on. Mm -hmm. And so start with what you need, what you want, what you know that's unique about you. Right. And again, you don't find that on the internet. Right. So I think, no, can we teach you exactly what to do and a, and a, and a, a blueprint for starting a business? No. But we can certainly educate you in a way that encourages you to think creatively to become the sort of person Julie actually developed herself into quite naturally. Right. So that's what we hope to do in classes. I bet she would have loved your class, John. <laughs> I really think so. I, I, I would hope so. I would certainly have loved to have half her in my class. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you for packaging it all up and giving us a lot to think about and digest from this amazing entrepreneurship story. John McVeigh, University of St. Thomas, Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. Thanks so much for your perspective. Thank you. To learn more about the show and find past episodes with all the professor commentary, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. Thanks again to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas, Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. And thanks to you for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Forlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham, for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means.